Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Congratulations. You made it. It's always fun to do stuff when there's light outside. It's a, it's a fun time. That's a good sound. It's a good start. Welcome to Important Records. Yay, we did it. All right, so this is the premise. That was the most lackluster of pros, which is perfect and apt for this record that we're about to discuss. So uh, we're going to do three records. There's going to be two people up on the stage at a time. Uh, for, we're recording this for a podcast, so that's why I was doing the sound check. Because you couldn't possibly understand the complicated sound check before I did it. There's a guy outside selling ice cream that sells everything. We'll get to that later. Anyways, we're going to talk about... I'm going to talk about Beck's mutations. Deadbeat's going to play three songs from said record. Then, Rock Falls and Seth are going to do Paul Simon's Graceland. And they're going to do two songs from that record. And Seth's going to talk about it. And then... Uh, Gabe and Joe are going to do Neil Young's On the Beach, and they're only going to do one song. So we decided to play the most songs from the record people like the least <laughs> and, go for, and just go in that order. It's going to be a fun... We're going to go back in time throughout the night. Uh, we did this show the first time two years ago, and I went last, and I talked about In Utero for an hour. <laughs> so, and the only reason why that ended is because I had a bus to catch to Urbana, Illinois. So if not for that, I'd still be talking about it. Uh, for the listener at home and for the people in the room, I'd like to point out that there is a horrible in utero tribute record with an eyesight of me featuring the horrible band Thursday playing the song Rape Me. So if you've ever wanted to hear New, New Jersey's hardcore band Thursday, pick up that copy over there. Anyways, this is not about Thursday. It could be. It might be. This is about Beck's Mutations, and before I ruin something that you genuinely love, why don't you play the first song for Mutations? Is that okay? Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Deadbeat.
Deadbeat with cold brains, everybody. That was really good. The reason why I said that so emphatically is because one of the performers that is going to be up here later is a horrible human being, and he said, Beck sucks. And that proves that Beck maybe sucks, but he can write a good song, and if it's interpreted by someone else, it becomes an actually good song, if that makes sense. His name is Gabe Lee Woods. He's a horrible human being. Anyways, that is the opening track. I'm technically not the follow-up to a, a, a very important record named Odalay. That's bullshit. Okay, so uh, this was released by the David Geffen Corporation in 1998, and they said it's technically not a follow-up, but that's not how things work. It's, it's technically a follow-up. It's the same artist with the producer that does Radiohead stuff. That counts as a follow-up. This is not a basement recording. This is a guy that didn't know what the fuck to say about anything. Here's how you know that. He had a sitar on the next track. The only single... The second performance uh, on the SNL in 98 that Beck was on was for this wonderful song called Nobody's Fault But My Own. Now, this song features a sitar. This is an important thing to me because it's really hard to steal sitars. It was incredibly easy for me to steal bass guitars from people that decided to play sports in high schools. You know who had a sitar? No one. Why? Beck is a rich kid. That's why I'm not so much a fan of a Beck as a person, but still a big fan of the sitar. I can't figure out how to tune a sitar, and that's why this is an important record. I think I'm doing, I think I'm doing like a third grade presentation of why things matter. Let's go on to the next track because I got lots of notes. For the listener at home, I'm literally stepping down off of the stage because I have to look at my True Detective-ish series of notes because I didn't realize that Saki has a printer. So I just, earlier today, I hand-wrote notes out like a crazy person. You know who never did that? Beck, because he's got Scientology money. Fuck this guy. Anyways... Um, Nobody's Fault My Own is a, is a wonderful, sad song, but it was written by a guy that was currently in a relationship, uh, who, and his girlfriend was a fashion stylist. That's why on the record he's wearing a plastic shirt. Not a joke. He's wearing a shirt made of plastic. Fuck you, Beck. You shouldn't, no one should wear plastic shirts. That being said, it's a beautiful song, and you could hear it on the Bridge School Benefit by Neil Young, which is coming up later. Anyways, let's get to the next song. It's called Lazy Flies, and um, this means nothing to me, but I I like your music, so I want to hear you do it. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Deadbeat. Just 
I'm doing a disservice to you because if the Beck camp ever hears this, they'll hear me make fun of the man, and then they'll hear you play this beautiful music. But they'll associate you with me for. Why do you love Beck so much? He's so creative, and I don't know. He can do so many different things so well. Okay, name one of the things he can do really well. Music is one of them. He is a good musician, guys. It's not a lie. Do you enjoy the new record? No. Yeah. I don't like his later stuff, but the earlier stuff is like... I, I enjoy his efforts recently. The songwriter, the working with other artists, the doing an album in a day kind of thing. I, I like the efforts. I don't necessarily like the results. But the early albums, there are a bunch of them. What's your favorite early album? I mean, I like Mutations. And that's why we're doing this, guys. Really? Party album? Yeah, it's great. Do you like drugs? Some, some drugs. Okay, that's why you like Beck. See, here's the thing. I'm not a drug guy. I'm a drink guy. And Beck, sometimes he does it for me. Sea Chains, I think, is a, it's a lovely record. We talked about doing that. You don't need to clap for Sea Chains, guys. Fuck. <laughs> that album does not get enough acclaim, guys. We need to give it up for Sea See, we talked about doing Sea Chains because I was like, maybe we should do that. I think it's a more ballsy choice to do mutations, and we should get credit for attempting to do this. Yeah. Because we're real artists. Who's more of a real artist, you or Beck? <laughs> Don't even know how to answer that. You. Who's more of an artist, me or Beck? You. That's right, that's right, me. <laughs> me, me, everybody. Anyways, um, one of the things that I forgot about 
was uh, the music press in 1998 was really bad. And uh, let's skip over. I'm going to read one review per track, right? So we're on track three. We just passed track three. It's Lazy Flies. That was a fantastic version so far of the two songs you performed. I prefer to Bex. Anyways, uh, the next song is Cancel Check. So here's a review from NME from September 29th, 1998. Mutation sees Beck replacing the spinning turntable with the acid rock light wheel. The concrete streaks with the long and winding road retreating further from glaring expectation into the complex little universe between those fluffy sideburns. <laughs> so a man got paid to write that. By the way, all these were written by men, white men. Okay. There's a reason why all of our speakers tonight are white men. Guys, it's a men's rally. They didn't know it yet. Anyways, so let's, let's go on to We Live Again, which I... Do you like that song, We Live Again? Okay, I do too. Moving on. This is from Pitchfork, November 1st, 1998. On Mutations, Bex traded in his two turntables and a microphone for a Moog synth and a copy of the Kinks. Blah, blah, blah. Who gives a shit? So that's that one. Let's see what other analogies we could form for the song Tropicalia, which was sort of a tribute to Os Mutantes. On Mutation, this is from a Sound Blob, Blab, by a white dude. On Mutations, Beck proves that an undistorted guitar and a bit of creativity can easily sound as exciting as two turntables and a microphone. <laughs> Here's the thing. Good for Beck. Good for fucking Beck. Because that's a... Bu- Every goddamn review I found about this record references the song Where It's At. A hundred percent of them. You know who was very popular in 1988? 1998, I apologize. Who was popular in 88? Let's go. The Chicago Cubs. They were, pretty, they were getting to the 89 Cubs. Good year. I don't even know. Who was popular in 1998 was Jamiroquai. Guess who, who did really well at the 98 VMAs? Jamiroquai and Beck. Who the fuck cares about Jamiroquai? By the way, Jamiroquai is doing really well. Look up his Wikipedia page. It will shock you how much money this guy has. Still, people in Europe are dumb. But Beck got the fuck out of that. Good for him. Um... Tropicalia is a, is a fantastic song. That is his tribute to Os Mutantes. Sadly, it is better, no offense to Os Mutantes, better and more accessible than any Os Mutantes song. And that's why if Os Mutantes had to play the Pitchfork Festival, they would no longer be headlining this Friday. Instead, it's Beck, everybody. Beck is going to be at the Pitchfork Music Festival. Tickets are available. Did you get free tickets or did you pay for those? <sighs> What's your problem? No, you don't know enough creative people to just get you in? Here's the problem. Let me talk about your problems now. Okay. You're a wonderful musician that writes these amazing songs. Why aren't you getting paid? Thanks for doing this free show, by the way. I really appreciate it. Um, she's only got one more song to play, and I'm going to do some more reviews and, and talk about how Beck influenced my life and try to keep it tight because we're already at 15 minutes here. Sorry about that. I talk fast, too. Imagine if I talk like a normie. Ooh, that'd be horrible. Anyways, you're going to play track seven. Is that correct? Here we go. Where will you go when this day is up? To your door, snakes have gone crazy tonight. 
good it's a really pretty song here's i think beck suffers from the billy corgan thing you either love his voice you hate his voice and i didn't really notice it until tonight i don't hate it but he he doesn't have a good voice let's be honest that's okay david bowie has a horrible voice he's one of the best frontmen of all time that's okay Ever, not everyone has talent you have talent why <laughs> sorry sorry i'm doing jiminy glick again i apologize for that no, but here's the thing. Why, why don't you sing like Beck? Did you ever try to do that? I'm just completely serious. Like, every shitty band that, I've, every band that I've been in, I've made it shitty. But when I would sing, I would definitely just cop from other people, right? I, have no, I can't sing, but I was always the singer because I happened to be the loudest person and have the microphone, right? So I would always be like, oh, this is my fucking Iggy Pop band or this is my Nirvana band. So I would always be out of key and just copying their styles. You don't do that. Sorry about pointing at you like I'm angry. <laughs> But did you ever try to sing like Beck? Well, no. I mean, he's a guy. He's got a different kind of voice. Yeah, but if you look at his current cover, he's very androgynous. He's got a Tilda Swinton vibe going on. He's wearing a very floppy hat. Wait, the mutations? No, not mutations. The current album. Oh, yeah. Would you date a man that wears the hat that Beck has on his current album? I like a lot of Beck's fashion choices, but I don't like the new hat. That's right. You're a smart woman. That's true. You're a smart human being. <laughs> what are your thoughts on men's rights? <laughs> that song sounded nothing like anything on Odalay. No, that's what I like about him. He can do so many... I completely agree. I'm being sincere. This is from CNN. This is the only review written by a woman, so this is all on you if this goes horrible. This is from... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm being a... Myself. This is from October 30th, 1998. It would have been easy for the musician slash singer slash songwriter to continue with the smart amalgam of hip-hop and rock that made his previous album, Odalay, a hit and won him a Grammy. The record label executives would be happy, and image-wise, it couldn't have hurt. Admittingly, the Beck of Odalay came off as a nerdy white rapper shaking his groove thing. But at least he was a nerdy white rapper shaking it to cool tunes. Like, where it's at, guys, everybody, where it's at! CNN is the only review that's still on the internet that gave it, that gave it a bad review, 
and it was the only one written by a woman, so thanks a lot. The next track on that, that did not land. Oh, shit. <laughs> Let's skip to Oh Maria. This is from the Rolling Stone review. Let's call this song Where It's Not, Oh Maria. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk. There's more of that. There's, I got five more of those. I'm just going to skip them. You get the gist. People are horrible writers. I'm a writer. I get paid for a living to write. Pretty cool. <laughs> Anyways, just want you guys to know how I pay the bills <laughs> using this thing. I'm pointing to my dick for the people at home. Mike Leibowitz, everybody. Back actually is a very important formula. Uh, <laughs> he was a formative musician in my life. That doesn't make sense. He meant a lot to me because I don't know when. How old were you when you found out about Beck? Do you remember? You were in high school. See, I'm a little bit younger than you, so I also found out about Back During Loser. Loser was, what, 94? I think it was like summer of 94. Yeah. We were all sad about Kurt. We were all happy about Courtney because the whole record is very good. So we were in that weird mix. We didn't know how to feel. So Loser came out, and it was a big deal. And uh, that was the prime era of the, the Columbia Records, or the Columbia whatever, the CD clubs, right, where you get like 12 CDs for a penny and no one would ever pay for them except some uncle did because he's weird. <laughs> So Uncle pays for all the CDs, and you have 12 of them. My dumb cousin went to war because he's a dummy. So he was in the Army, and he used to bring home a, like a giant like, case of CDs. And they kind of just all shared. So like, I'm like, why do you have three copies of Porno for Pyros? No one needs one copy. <laughs> he had four copies of the first two Stone Temple Pilots records. That suited him quite well. Anyways, he's a real dummy is what I'm trying to say. People in the military, boo, let's start that trend. <laughs> Fuck it. You're in Logan Square. You know where you, you're barely Logan Square. You guys fucking get it. All right. Beck, am I right? How many people do you think are in the military like Beck? Serious question. Do you think if Beck entertained the troops, people would enjoy this? Should I keep this in the podcast? I'm thinking I put this at the top of the podcast. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a very hardcore group of fans out there. Do you think they're in the military, though? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. They're in grad school. And that's good. I bet Peck fans are really well-read and nice individuals like yourself. I like Nirvana. <laughs> Anyways, I, that's how I found out about Beck. As I got that single. I got the loser single um, in 94 because he didn't care. He had a bunch of copies of it. So then I bought Odalie when it came out. I was a big fan. I actually had the two turntables and a microphone blue shirt, which is bad on a slightly overweight pudgy kid because then it looks like you just got tits because the records are directly over your nipples. So you got two big titties and a microphone dick right there. And then I had the jackass shirt, which is just a donkey's head and said back jackass. I'm a huge Beck fan. I'm completely serious. But then I listened to this one today and I've been trying to like this album since 98. This is the first Beck album that I got like the week it came out and it just never clicked for me. And the only reason why is because I don't know how to even fathom buying a sitar. It goes back to that. I'm completely serious. That's why like, I like Nine Inch Nails a lot, but I don't know how to program anything. Even if it's a Roland 303, that seems too advanced for me. It seems like you have way too much time. You should be working fast food jobs. Like You should be in, in bad labor. And that's why I've never completely gotten it. I can't relate. That being said, I love your music. So when you proposed doing this, I absolutely wanted to do it. And I'm really glad that we did. This is all a plug for her music. You can buy it right there. There's some seven inches. There's some tapes there. Uh, we should all support Beck. He's a struggling Scientologist. That shit costs money, guys. Money is expensive. <laughs> did you not know that, guys? Scientology and God. Okay. Um, you, do you have any shows to plug? Yeah, I'm playing at Quinter's uh, next Wednesday. How does that go? You're really good and you're playing quenchers. How does that go? 
you play wonderful silent, not silent, wonderful sad, quiet music that demands attention that makes me like incredibly sad in a very good way. Bringing it back to back, guys. And that's what it's about. It's about bringing it back to back. We're going to get off the stage, and uh, Rock Falls and Seth are going to come up here. Ladies and gentlemen, please buy her records. Please buy all the records at Saki and completely deplete their st- uh, their entire stock. Let's make it real hard for them tomorrow. And put your hands together for Debbie, everybody. That was fantastic. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, two people that are much more talented than me, please put your hands together for Rock Falls. Shining like a national guitar I am following the river Down the highway To the cradle of the Civil War I'm going to Graceland Graceland Memphis, Tennessee I'm going to Graceland Poor boys and pilgrims With families And we are going to Graceland My traveling companion is nine years old. He is the child of my first marriage. And I've reason to believe we both will be received in Graceland. She's come back to tell me she's gone. As if I didn't know that, as if I didn't know my own bed. As if I'd never noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead. She said, losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you blown apart. Everybody sees the wind blow. I'm going to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and children and families, and we are going to Graceland. My traveling companions are ghosts in empty sockets. I'm looking at ghosts and empty. But I've reason to believe we all will be receiving Graceland. There's a girl in New York City. She calls herself the human trampoline. Sometimes when I'm falling, flying, or tumbling in turmoil, I say, so this is what she means. She means we're bouncing into Graceland. And I say, Lou. 
Graceland. <laughs> I'm going to Graceland. For reasons I cannot explain, there's some part of me that wants to see Graceland. And I may be obliged to defend every love and every ending, or maybe there's no obligation now. But I've been reason to believe we all will be received in Graceland, Graceland. My name is Seth. I was really uh, surprised and, and delighted when I got invited to do this. I think of myself mostly as a musician, but um, so this will be my first time talking like this, um, which you'll find out. But I've been a fan of Annie and Rock Falls for a long time, and I was really happy that we found a common affinity for this record. And I've been a fan of Brandon and all of the products that he puts out in the world for a long time. Uh, I won't be able to be as loud and funny as him. I'm going to be a little more quiet and serious. So, um, But it's hard to be as funny as Brandon. Uh, you know, I, I wrote this thing, and I was kind of surprised at how long and earnest it turned out. Um, but I'm not going to apologize. I'm just going to kind of barrel through and read the pieces of paper that I have and hope for the best. Um, but I am going to make it worse by acknowledging a couple people right before I start, which the first one is uh, an old friend of mine who uh, I listened to this record a lot with when we were young and who informed my uh, appreciation for it. And that person's name is Aaron Rodgers. And the other is another person that that also uh, applies to um, who also helped me sort of structure this, edit, edit this piece. And that person's name is Ray Van Fox. Um, so thanks to them. And um, so I'll just read this thing now. Oh, another maybe caveat is that I quote a lot of from the lyrics of the album, which I know is really dorky, but I'm not, I mean, I will apologize for that, but I couldn't help it. It was, I could not resist. I couldn't resist. These are, this is going to read a lot like those things that like Brandon read from the thing. Like I'm, a, for the podcast listeners, I'm a white man, just uh, in case you couldn't tell. So. So they say of that. So it starts with a quote from the first song, Boy in the Bubble. Every generation throws a hero up the pop charts. When people ask why I have such stunted taste in music, I try to avoid saying that I didn't grow up in a musical household because it's not really true. We had an upright piano that my grandmother gave us. My dad had a busted old classical guitar that my siblings and I broke. My mom was even the choir director at church, and we sang all the time around the house. We also had a stereo with a turntable 
And my parents bought a few records of children's music, Peter and the Wolf, Mickey's Mouser Size, and the like. The central problem, as far as I was concerned, was that they, that is my parents, had no real record collection of their own, leaving my older brother to fend for himself in the world of pop music and the other two of us to glean things from his research. When that supply chain left me uninspired, I'd flip through the maybe third of a milk crate's worth of vinyl, a few original cast recordings of corny musicals from the 60s, a Neil Diamond record or two, and most importantly to me, Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. The song America, about a relationship falling apart on a road trip with a redemptive aspiration, remember that theme, if you will, was a particular favorite. Years later, when we got a CD player, it was the same situation. Bernstein conducting Beethoven's Ninth, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, and by some stroke of luck, Paul Simon's 1986 Graceland, which I can only imagine is a gift from a more oak, uh, hip Oak Park neighbor, such as the uncharacteristic nature of a relatively recent billboard hit showing up in the Vanek house during this time. Uh, the cover didn't give very much away. I could sort of see the resemblance between the clean-cut, bespectacled man on the back cover and the long-haired, mustachioed hippie sitting next to Art Garfunkel on the Greatest Hits LP, but I couldn't get over how different he seemed. Uh, not necessarily older-looking, but rather much more aloof and dissatisfied, almost as if he didn't find certain stuff amusing anymore. Definitely less warm and sincere. What had happened to him? I didn't know at the time that Princess Leia had recently broken his heart, but after I found out, it made total sense. At that point, I was well acquainted with oldies about good old-fashioned heartbreak, but the palpable bitterness in lines like, she's come back to tell me she's gone, as if I didn't know my own bed, was not something I was used to hearing at 9 or 10. You might say I was pretty sheltered. A small skylight in my pop culture bomb shelter opened in the form of a brief, maybe two-year period at my house where we were blessed with cable television. During these salad days, my siblings and I would binge watch MTV and whatever else we were allowed, trying in our own desperate way to find out what we could about coolness in order to survive at our suburban public school. Pretty immediately, I intuited that the kind of coolness available to me had much less to do with the glamorous rockers who wanted nothing but a good time, as the popular band Poison sang at the time, and more to do with a certain depressive middle-aged New York Jew on his second divorce who just didn't give a shit anymore. After all, the pathos of every rose has its thorns says very little when compared to the stoic wisdom of breakdowns come and breakdowns go, so what are you going to do about it? That's what I'd like to know. I might even go so far as to say that here we are now, entertain us, barely holds a candle. So I spent the next three or four years during breaks in my larger, more predictable evolution from the oldies radio station to the Beatles to Led Zeppelin and classic rock, sort of parsing the deeply embedded clues about adulthood that were buried in this fascinating compact disc and its accompanying booklet. The more I sing along with them, the more the often funny stream-of-consciousness nonsense lyrics slowly began to take shape into meaningful poetry about love, loss, and aging. Certain pieces of the vocabulary of adult life trickled in over time. I found out what a Fulbright was, apparently some kind of prestigious scholarship. It was my first exposure to the concept of the first world and the third world, thanks to You Can Call Me Al, and I vaguely remember the day that I finally looked in the encyclopedia, and it might have been Encarta at that time, shout out for Encarta, uh, to, discover that a national, uh, to discover that a national guitar wasn't a poetic turn of phrase, but an actual type of completely metallic resonator guitar, so it would make sense that it would shine like the Mississippi Delta, or that the Mississippi Delta would be shining like it. But, even more importantly, an emotional vocabulary of adulthood seeped into my consciousness as well. The sly, self-deprecating flirtation in I Know What I Know, the deflating cynicism of Fat Charlie in Crazy Love Volume 2, and don't get me started on the girl in New York City who calls herself the human trampoline. I don't want you to think that my home was so monastic that a Paul Simon CD would be my only window into the adult world. I'm sure I picked up just as much important information from Murphy Brown, Steve Martin movies, and good old-fashioned eavesdropping. But, you know, that's what makes pop music the best. That's, I think, why we're here talking about it. Uh, the catchiness of it combined with the privacy, that intoxicating feeling that the singer is speaking to just you. 
Uh, it makes it ideal for infinite listens, allowing the material to burrow deeper, making more profound trenches in your little brain than moonlighting ever could. But of course, this was mostly happening subconsciously at this point. I don't know that you think of yourself as a child as constantly on the lookout for any shred of information about the adult world, but in a way, that's what childhood is all about, an uncritical, open-ended research project with a single question. What kind of person can or will I become? So, part of what makes Graceland an important record for me is that it marries, and I would argue very skillfully, instrumental music that is so universally contagiously joyful that any nine-year-old can immediately understand and relate to it to lyrics that could hardly be more personal, melancholy, and concerned primarily with the specific doubts and struggles of middle age. Uh, this, I think, is also what makes great art, binding two polar, polar opposite modes of experience together so deftly that the audience cannot imagine them any other way. Furthermore, it satisfies another of the classic criteria for important albums in that it not only holds up, but becomes richer and more complex through repeated listens. And for this, it does, uh, it does this in a very nuanced way for me, and I'll try to describe that in greater detail in a little bit. Who am I to blow against the wind? It wasn't until much later that I learned how truly complex the real-life story of the music I was enjoying really was. The basic narrative of Graceland, as described in the album liner notes and elsewhere, is well known, but here's the gist anyway. Simon, at a creative and commercial low point, happens across a cassette tape titled Gumboots Accordion Jive Hits Volume 2. The infectious music sparks something in him that revives his creative energy. The impulse leads him to Johannesburg, where he hires a studio and local musicians to enlist in the collaborative process of incorporating traditional and current strains of South African imbakanga or jive music, into his singer-songwriter aesthetic, culminating in the record-breaking world tour that flew in the face of apartheid South Africa and increased the international popularity of already legendary South African exiles, Hugh Masekela, Miriam Makeba, and Ladysmith Black Mombazo, among others, to say nothing of the Grammys and the number one hit it scored for Warner Brothers Records, Stateside, etc., etc. Now, you don't have to be currently swimming in the umbrella driven hashtag activism of 2014 for this story to raise your colonialist antenna, although honestly it might help a little bit. Upper class white dude grafts his ideas onto the traditional art form of marginalized people living under a repressive regime and gets endlessly patted on the back for it. Even in 1987, this wasn't leaving a great taste in everyone's mouth, and it didn't take long for the critics to dominate the discourse about Graceland. Simon was besieged by protests and bad press to the point where he had to call more than one press conference for a chance to make his intentions clear. Uh, and without having read every transcript, I might paraphrase thusly. Guys, this is a collaboration between musicians interacting as equals. The session musicians got three times scale for their work as well as writing credit, which, let's be honest, is going to make them some serious coin, seeing as how I just increased their market share by about a zillion percent by single-handedly bringing them into the American music industry. So tell me why I'm the bad guy here. Well, it turns out that there are plenty of people that would like to explain why Simon is the bad guy. It's not too hard to find anecdotal evidence of uh, less-than-ideal collaboration. Here are two really quick alleged examples, courtesy of Google.com. When Simon tapped the up-and-coming Chicano rock outfit Los Lobos to help him generate raw material during an informal jam session, they told him that they don't really jam per se, but that they had a new song that they were working on. They didn't realize that as they played, Simon's producer was recording what they would later see described on the album as Myth of Fingerprints or All Around the World, Words and Music by Paul Simon. When the band threatened a lawsuit, Simon's lawyer replied that the still pre-number one hit La Bamba, Los Lobos, had much more to lose than Simon, and they agreed and dropped the suit. Heidi Berg, a friend of Lorne Michaels, famous for lending Simon the now almost totemistic bootleg cassette that launched the whole creative journey, claims that she brought the tape to a mentoring session 
with Simon, who was her producer at the time, as an example of a sound that she was producing for her own music when Simon borrowed the tape and disappeared for four weeks. When she next saw him, he told her that he had bought the rights in the masters uh, of several songs on the tape, including the one that became the fourth track on Graceland, Gumboots. The song is not, as I had always assumed, a collaboration between Simon and a band called the Boyoyo Boys that took place in a studio in, a, in South Africa, but rather their actual song that they released as a single on their own, but that Simon bought and then added his singing and a few other touches on top of. Good luck finding a copy of the original 7-inch as Berg claims Simon has gone to great lengths to disappear every copy. But if Saki can find me one, I will pay American dollars for it. So at the very least, we have a guy who really knows what he wants and is good at using his money and power to get it, or so say the folks on the margins of Graceland. But on the other hand, this is what great artists do, is it not? They grab inspiration from wherever they can find it and make a final product greater than the sum of the parts. After all, I grew up during the birth, growth, co-opting, re-co-opting, and subsequent perennial identity crises of hip-hop, so appropriation and recontextualization I can deal with. But Simon's go-to defense that cultural barriers are meant to be broken and that music transcends political categories and blah, blah, blah was more or less sufficient for pre-adolescent and, to be honest, even adolescent and post-adolescent me. Why would we saddle this transformative music with these arbitrary definitions of race, class, and politics? After all, this was the 1980s. The concept of globalization was still new and exciting. It hadn't yet achieved the economic and cultural taint it would during and after the Clinton years. Like the narrator of You Can Call Me Al's third verse, who maybe we should just call Al, we might be a foreign man transported to a third world marketplace surrounded by this exotic but inviting sound. But is there anything more appropriate for us to do but look around, take it all in, and reply amen and hallelujah? Musicians and appreciators of music aren't responsible to the cultural vicissitudes of troubled nation states, are they? Are we? Well, maybe they and we are. The real and actual controversy of Graceland isn't one of taking culture but of giving it, and I'll explain as briefly as possible. In 1980, the UN called for a total cultural boycott of apartheid South Africa. This is on top of the economic and sporting sanctions in place since 1961. The rationale being, of course, that a nation committing such heinous human rights abuses so blatantly should not be included in the international community on any terms. Provisions of the boycott called for foreign musicians and performers to refrain from booking concert or performances in the country so as not to generate any revenue or moral support for the uh, politically backward government. So while his 10-day Johannesburg recording visit wasn't explicitly prohibited in the language of the UN boycott, the language was soon modified after his trip to include studio work, it was resoundedly condemned in a letter from the African National Congress, the anti-apartheid group that we know mostly as a platform of Nelson Mandela, and by many outspoken Western musicians and activists. Another part of Simon's loophole-seeking, ask-covering preparation for his South African safari was to gain the blessing of Quincy Jones and Harry Belafonte, two American recording artists with plenty of human rights cred between them, and two names he made sure to drop during every contentious 1987 press conference and interview. So, is it the worst cultural crime ever committed? Maybe not. Simon obeyed the letter of the law, while all the time insisting on the primacy and importance of his own artistic vision and the absurdity of expecting pop music to be meaningfully entrenched in a specific political position, and maybe there's something noble about that. Whatever the answer is, we're not going to get to the bottom of it tonight. Uh, the problem for me is that the more I read about it, the more all of this evidence against Graceland's grace just kept stacking up. And once that kind of poison is in the well, every drink just makes you feel a little sicker. So the album has taken on, for me, a very complex bittersweetness. Just as Holden Caulfield slowly evolved from a cool, truth-to-power speaking anti-hero to my teenage self towards an insufferably self-indulgent brat to my adult self, so has Graceland evolved from an admirably bold experiment in cross-cultural collaboration towards a sleazy colonialist cash grab. Or to be accurate, I should say one element of the album has evolved in that direction.
the home stretch now. Stay with me. <laughs> so here's my attempt at the requisite third act Ira Glass plot twisting epiphany. And it's that all the time I spent studying and decoding the words in that CD booklet, I couldn't have guessed that Graceland's real mindfuck was going to come from the part that seemed to require no analysis whatsoever. Those deceptively simple beats and chords that immediately made me feel like dancing. It was so, I was so busy laboring over the language and how complicated it made me feel about what it must be like to be an adult that I had no idea that adulthood might also include questions about whether it's a good idea to dance to certain music because of who made it and why and how, and sometimes what they do when they're not making music. This isn't a PowerPoint presentation, but if it was, I might show a graph of a perfect X with two lines, the two lines of the X representing respectively the words and music of Graceland, where the X axis of the graph is time, and the Y axis is what, difficulty, complexity, discomfort, maybe all three, if that doesn't fuck up the graph too much. What I'm trying so hard to make clear is that over the same period that Graceland's immediately accessible music has gotten more difficult for me to digest, those initially inscrutable lyrics have only hit home harder. The fact that I've grown up to a point where maneuvers like taking a woman for granted because she pleases me or putting on aftershave to compensate for ordinary shoes have lost much of their mystery have made me ever more aware of how gracefully that line of the graph has aged. In fact, that line of the graph I'm tempted to defend here in 2014 at an independent record store in Logan Square to you heartless monsters <laughs> as a durable document of a no-bullshit, mature, personal truth expressed clearly and poetically by an artist that has earned his place as one of the great lyricists. I'll even go far as to say that if Graceland isn't on your list of great breakup records, then you know, you know, pull out your dry erase board or blog listicle maker or whatever we use to keep track of that sort of thing and give it an update. Okay, so, but my traveling companion is nine years old and I have reason to believe we both will be receiving Graceland. So as I listen to Graceland in 2014, I hear two versions, the one I loved unconditionally as a nine-year-old and the one that makes me cringe in a few different ways as a 33-year-old. I cringe in recognition of Paul Simon's first world smarminess. I cringe at the unequivocally corny 80s production choices. And of course, I cringe at my own inability and unwillingness to unpack the quagmire of colonialism inherent in the music. Fortunately, I have my nine-year-old self readily available to disregard all that stuff and then just revel in the onslaught of new and exotic words, new and exotic sounds, and new and exotic emotions. And just because this exoticism is problematic, I don't want to disregard the new. I still haven't heard anything like Graceland, and for that I think it deserves some credit. The notes that begin the album are still unlike any other accordion playing I've heard. The combination of breath and rhythm that's not quite singing and not quite beatboxing that Ladysmith Black Mombazo employs during Homeless still thrills me. And good luck finding insanely melodic bass playing that can even come close to Bikiti Kumalo's high-wire act on Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. That Graceland dealt me such a tricky hand intellectually makes it only more appealing to me. And the fact that its two main elements, uh, that is the words and the music, are at odds with each other in this time-released inverted shape, remember my graph, makes it entirely unique in the jukebox of my growth from childhood to adulthood. That the basic reading of the record could be flip-flop for my current self and my nine-year-old traveling companion is what makes it inevitable in those instances when that dumb video for You Can Call Me Out with that other mega-creep Chevy Chase pops up somewhere and that undeniable exuberant groove reaches right into me in equally jubilant and melancholy terms and Paul asks, who will be my role model now that my role model is gone for me to say who indeed? So I think that uh, Andrew and Annie are going to sing another song from the album. They've um, graciously invited me to sit in. She's a rich girl. She don't try to hide it. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. 
There's a poor boy, empty as a pocket, empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na, she's got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na, diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. People say she's crazy, she's got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. She was physically forgotten, and then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, you've taken me for granted because I please you. Wearing these diamonds. And I could say, ooh. Everybody would know what I was talking about. Yes, everybody would know what I was talking about. About diamonds on the soles of her shoes. on aftershave to compensate for his ordinary shoes. And she says, honey, take me dancing, but they ended up out sleeping in a doorway by the bodegas and the lights on Upper Broadway, wearing diamonds on the soles of their shoes. And I could say, ooh. Everybody would know what I was talking about, yeah. Everybody know what I was talking about. Diamonds.
People say I'm crazy, I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Yeah, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of your shoes. Falls, way to go, that's great. Stephanie on Kazoo. We just leave all the stuff up here for the next one. Yes, of course. You're extremely talented, all of you. That was so heartfelt and good. Do you, you should tour with each other. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Okay, could somebody make that happen? If we do a Kickstarter campaign that doesn't involve potato salad, could, could, would it work? I, the fact that you don't even know that makes me love you so much more. Good for you. We have one... I love you so much. In a non-sexual, we're both married to different people way. I love you so much. You're so great. Seth, everything you said tonight was wonderful, and I couldn't have done any of that. But you're wrong. Nirvana's way better. Are you fucking kidding me? He literally sacrificed everything for art. Fuck off. I care about bald people. Speaking of bald people, coming to the stage are two of my favorite individuals. <laughs> um, Deadbeat and I talked. Sorry that I call you Deadbeat and not your actual name. And I say Deadbeat because people should buy music at Deadbeat. Follow her at Deadbeat Beat on Facebook and uh, buy all of her records. Anyways, we have one panel presentation. It's on Neil Young's On the Beach. And I'm going to bring to the stage two of my favorite individuals, hands down. One of the guys is from L.A. One of the guys is from here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Joe McAdam and Gabe Leibowitz, everybody. All right. Well, um... Yeah, that that was uh, that was good. How you feeling, Gabe? Pretty emotional. Yeah, right. Yeah. That was pretty heavy. Um, this I feel like that was uh, far too good uh, for me to follow. Um, you want to get out of here? Yeah, let's let's get the fuck out of here, dude. <laughs> oh my god, Nirvana's okay. Listen, this isn't about them, but we they're all right. Uh, but what uh, Brandon Weatherby does not want to admit is that if Kurt Cobain were still alive, he would probably be doing like a rap metal project at Gathering of the Juggalos. <laughs> he would have sold out in a second. Um, listen, so we're going to be talking about uh, the record On the Beach uh, by Sugar Ray. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> Brandon gave me that line earlier. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, the record On the Beach by Neil Young. Um, if, you, uh, if you're a young person and you're not familiar with Neil Young, uh, he is a Jimmy Fallon character. Um, <laughs> it's... It's kind of like Jimmy Fallon's Chris Gaines, I think, is who Neil Young is. Um, if you're not familiar with Chris Gaines, he's like Garth Brooks's Sasha Fierce. Uh, and if you don't know who Garth Brooks is, he is a bald old asshole. Uh, just so you know. Oh, my God. Um, listen. What... <laughs> On the beach. This is really, I think, when Neil Young uh, traded in his two turntables and a microphone. <laughs> well, you need to you need to stomp some box. <laughs> some no. All right, all right. Here we That's go. What she said. <laughs> oh my God! Hey, can we get a reverse Kickstarter for us to go on tour, where uh, you take our money away so we cannot do it ever? It's good to laugh. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know. So anyway, it was, it, seeing Seth uh, have such a well-prepared speech, really, uh, woof, I feel like I'm drowning. I have like five notes uh, that I wrote this afternoon. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I, uh, I honestly, I, I love the record on the beach. It's fantastic. I got it um, probably when I was in high school. It's uh, because I was just reading about it, and it was like this. It, he never released it on CD, at least until like the... Mid two thousands, which a handful of his records from that era he didn't do with. He didn't put them out on CD because Neil Young thought that CDs were stupid, uh, and he was totally right. He it was it's kind of prophetic. They nobody buys CDs as much anymore, um, and everyone is going back to vinyl, or no one cares. I guess most people just don't care anymore. Um, Place to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, listen, uh, Saki Records is a sinking ship, and I'm just, you know what? Don't kill the fucking messenger, all right? Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I am, I'm a huge record collector. I love doing it. It's, it's a huge passion of mine uh, because I need some kind of identity. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, so in my head, I was like, oh, shit, you can't even get this on CD. I was in high school. I was like, this is cool, something cool to have. So I went out and got it uh, and loved it immediately. Just, it, it, it's one of my favorite records. And I'm not, I, didn't, I wasn't even that well-versed in Neil Young. I just knew, like, well, this is certainly something cool to do. That I should definitely do it. Um, and it, it, it struck me immediately as like being very mellow for, for him. It's like it's recorded with uh, kind of a handful of rotating musicians for this album. Um, a, a couple guys from the band are on it. Rick Danko and uh, Lee Von Helm are the rhythm section for about the, half the record, which is great. Uh, it's like their most mellow and like easygoing playing I've ever heard by them, but still like extremely soulful. Um, and I, I didn't know a whole lot about the record, honestly, until I was asked to do the show. And I was like, I like that record a lot. Uh, let's do that. Uh, and and I, I just have lived with it for years and years and years. And I didn't, like, read reviews. I've never read reviews or people's opinions about it. I was just like, I just like it. I just want to – I listen to it all the time. So I went back, and I was reading about, like, the making of it and reviews of it and things like that in the last week or so. Um, they, uh, they apparently uh, recorded it while uh, eating something they called honey slides. Uh, listen, all right. Uh, 
they they it, it's basically weed and honey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They like like cooked weed together with honey, uh, and they just ate that while they recorded this. Uh, so it's super fucking chill, bro. <laughs> <laughs> H- fucking honey slides, Neil. It it seriously it sounds like something you'd get at, like a fish parking lot, like <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> so they were like super baked on honey slides. Neil, uh, he, he was asked about it. I read something where he was asked about it, and he said uh, it felt like heroin is his description of eating these things. Um, and I, I, I don't doubt that Neil knows what that feels like. Uh, right. I, I don't have any doubt. Uh, the man who had to have Coke boogers edited out of the last waltz, I think he knows what the hell he's talking about. Uh, but neither honey nor weed feels like heroin. I don't know which part of that. <laughs> Point is, I just want to listen to this record and get high with you guys. <laughs> Let's just... Everybody look under your chair. <laughs> You're going to find a lid of jazz grass. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> Let's fucking do this, dude. <laughs> God damn it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, I honestly, God, I don't, I'm not very good at like talking about music and dis- deconstructing it critically. I would really much rather just like listen to it and be like, no, 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 listen to that. That part. Yeah, that's the fucking part. That's it. That's the, that's the part that I like. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so, um, Jesus Christ. I, uh, so I've only, I've only owned it on uh, vinyl. I've only had the vinyl copy. I never got the CD of it. So it's very much broken down into two sides uh, just by the nature of that, which sound very different from each other. I think the first side is very like, kind of musically bright, and the, the lyrics are, uh, I don't want to say positive, because nothing on this record is incredibly positive, but it feels like lighter on the first side, which immediately appealed to me. That was, I, I would definitely say I'm more of a music compared to lyrics person, um, and so that, that kind of drew me into it. And then you get to the uh, side B of this record, and that is, like, when the honey slides kick in. That's, like, <laughs> this, like, super, like, kind of really down and dark, and uh, it, it's, it's fantastic. I think, um, again, like, I was just reading about it uh, earlier, and, and somebody had asked Neil Young what he thought about this record years and years after the fact. And he just kind of goes, like, oh, that was a good one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think like I think like one side of that's pretty cool, uh, and he's talking about the the side B, um, which is yeah, that's the totally dark darker side of the record, more uh, musically dark, and um, I don't know. So that one, yeah, I think Neil and I maybe disagree, but I'm sure once I'm a grizzled old man, I will be on Neil's side. Um, yeah, just I don't know. Like I'm I'm a I'm a Paul McCartney fan. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> So right there's a there's a big groan on that wasn't there? Did the I I hope to God the mics picked up somebody groaning that I like Paul McCartney. Uh, fucking all right, we can hate Beck all goddamn day. What is this shit? Paul McCartney was a genius. God damn it. <laughs> Gabe, what's your take on Beck? You hate him. What the fuck are Coke boogers? Coke boogers, just like a nasty little boogie, like a. Just have you, you, you've seen obviously you've seen the movie The Last Waltz. I and, have. Uh, they they in the original theatrical cut of it, Neil Young, you could see like gopped up gacky coke stuck into his nose, 
that was digitally removed for the DVD release of the film. Did George Lucas do that, man? Uh, yeah, Luke, Lucas, Lucas did that. Uh, he added in, like, a Jawa, <laughs> like, in the back. It was super weird. Uh, <laughs> you haven't seen The Last Waltz until you've seen George Lucas's cut, dude. You haven't fucking seen it. <laughs> in all fairness, I did pump that one to you. Yeah, you kind of you, you you gave it to me. Um, <laughs> oh my god, let's just talk about Lady Smith Black Mombasa. <laughs> Can we at least? I know that, that there was the uh, Seth's review of that record was a little bittersweet. There's some uh, critiques of of uh, Paul Simon, but you know what? At least he made sure that we got those lifesavers ads with Lady Smith Black Mombasa in it. That's if there's anything to be said about that record. Yeah. Everybody forgot about that. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Oh my God! Hey, where? What are we talking about? All right. Um, anyway, I, uh, I, I've, I've loved on the beach for a long time. I, uh, I think in the last year, I, I recently moved to Los Angeles from Chicago, uh, and this has been in my car on the CD player uh, the entire time um, because I'm one of those nerds that wants to think that their life is a movie with some shitty soundtrack to it constantly. So I'm driving around like, oh, I've heard about Laurel Canyon, you know, like <laughs> that kind of shit. Like, oh, I think I saw a sign a while ago. Um, and so it's, it's just been constantly on repeat uh, in my car for so long, and I think it, it, it actually became much more alive lyrically to me within the last year where I was, was always thought of it as kind of like, oh, it's a kind of a mellow, nice record to hang out and listen to. Uh, then I started to think, oh, what, what is it dealing with? It's really uh, Neil Young, not uh, in a good spot, I think, when it was recorded. Uh, it was, uh, at the time, people weren't super into it, did not sell very well. Uh, he was, everyone's like, yeah, do Harvest again. And he's like, I'm just going to get super stoned and chill out with my friends and make sad music. And everyone's like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> sure, Neil. Um, so uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, problems he had with, uh, I would say, critics, which, is, which are addressed on this. Uh, a dude in his band had just killed himself. Uh, everything was, like, shitty. He'd just broken up with somebody. Um, so he doesn't deal with it in, like, uh, like, the Papa Roach way of dealing with being sad. You know what I mean? It's not like... the, the uh, Cut my life into pieces, freak out, uh, Papa Roach style. He is a he's a, an enlightened, intelligent man <laughs> who knows how to deal with feelings uh, and and can write them down much better than I can. Um, I, listen, where where are we in these notes? Is p- that Papa Roach note in the in the <laughs> notes, or was that Papa Papa Roach? Where Papa we got? Roach? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, the point is, listen, um, so, he, okay, so let's talk about one of the songs on it, Revolution Blues, uh, one of my favorite, probably one of the ones that drew me into the record immediately, um, is fantastic, and it, it is that kind of, like, angsty, I hate celebrities, I want them dead kind of vibe to the, to the song, uh, which uh, I, uh, I was like, yeah, I can totally get behind that, that sounds exactly what I'm talking about. I later found out uh, by doing research uh, written based on him meeting Charles Manson um, (laughs) and like hanging out and being buddies with Charles Manson uh, and uh, I think written kind of in the perspective of uh, your Charles Manson. And uh, I liked it uh, before I knew that. (laughs) 
And now it's like, ooh, egg on my face. Uh, <laughs> ooh. Uh, I think that is, uh, that is the biggest problem with music today. Nobody hangs out with Charles Manson anymore. <laughs> you need more uh, psychotic religious cult leaders and murderers in your ranks uh, for rock and roll music. Well, we got Beck. We got Beck. Uh, yeah, he's, that's as close as we got. And, yeah, you know, not... It's not really that hard sounding. I don't know. Listen, the, did the Black Keys ever hang out with David Koresh? Uh, <laughs> I want to know. Um, <laughs> um, another song on this record, uh, which is actually the first song I heard from the record called Vampire Blues, um, which I actually, oddly enough heard a Mercury Rev cover of it, uh, or before I even heard the album, which came out in like the late 90s or something. Does anyone remember that band? Okay, excellent. I don't. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they're good boys. Uh, <laughs> I uh, anyway. I uh, I think I, I like I like that song a lot too. Um, the the lyrics the opening lyrics are I'm a vampire baby sucking blood from the earth, um, which that that lyric alone makes it the exact reverse of uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings by the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, and therefore makes that the best song in the world if it is the reverse of it. Um, what did Billy Corgan do to deserve this tonight? <laughs> Be an asshole his whole life? Is that, a, is that what he did? Okay. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. This is, um, I think this record uh, uh, overall on the whole is is kind of a statement about people not understanding what you're doing, not being appreciated. Uh, uh, certainly, critically, it was not appreciated, and, uh, and he's, he wrote about that. Um, uh, let me see if there's... Let me see here. I, um, <laughs> I got to the Papa Roach part in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I even do notes? Um, <laughs> Got to get that jab in there. Got to get it in. Oh, my God. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. This, this, this record, uh, very much so, uh, is about that, that kind of vibe of not uh, fitting in or not being understood. I want to read, or let me see some of the lyrics from... Um, uh, the song that Gabe will be playing in a minute here on the beach, the title song from that. Um, there, it, that whole—I uh, feel like that whole song. I didn't. It didn't stand out to me immediately when I first got the record. It, it, it wasn't. It's very mellow musically, and it's very kind of slow and quiet. Uh, and I always need like ten years to appreciate those songs. You know what I mean? I'm very slow about like, oh yeah, I, I've heard it like a million times, and then it's like, oh, it finally kicked in for me. Um, but it's about. Living in the moments of, of uh, being unappreciated, not fitting in, and not having anybody really understand what you're creating. I don't know if this is all true. I haven't asked Neil if that's what he thinks. Um, uh, but a lot of people's response would either be to be angry about that or uh, to try to do that like self-help style of positivity, to try to get out of that. Um, and Neil Young's response was just kind of like, Fuck it, I'm going to go away. I'm leaving. I need to get out of here. And I think that is the most human response and the most real response you can have to that. Uh, and it's honest. And it's that's that's the whole message that I take away from the record. I think it's fantastic. And then uh, Gabe will play the song for you. 
I'm going to do on the beach. Surprise. Supposed <laughs> to be a surprise. God damn it. Can we get a little verb going?
Gabe Lewis playing Sugar Ray's On the Beach. You got any dastardly stuff you'd like to promote? All right, fuck your band. All right. Are you guys doing well? Good. Good. You got a whole George Michael thing meets Bruce Springsteen thing going on right now. Shimmying up here. Anyone else tucked in today? Sir? What's up? I'd like to point out, uh, thanks to Saki for letting us do this. You guys are great. Uh, it's the best record store in Chicago. Buy everything on the walls. Even if you don't have a record player, you're, and you're here, so you probably do have a record player. You can buy Cards Against Humanity and or the expansion packs. That's the thing. Four of ex- That's so many expansion packs. How many? There's four of them. I'd like to point out that Joe McAdam went the longest. <laughs> no one gave him a time limit. Didn't say, you got to do tight 20 up here. Just went for it. Also demanded your attention the most. It was good. It was real good. I enjoyed that immensely. Thank you so much for doing this. One of the reasons why I asked Joe to do this is because him and the fabulous Nick had this great show called RPM, which was a music podcast, so they would talk about music for roughly 90 minutes an episode. So I figured he would definitely be prepared to talk about one specific album for 90 minutes. Good job. (laughs) Proud of you. (laughs) Excellent time. Excellent time. You guys are great. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, obviously, thanks to every other performer. They're all more talented than me. I have incredible taste for me. I mean, that's really impressive. Dastardly, great band. Rock Falls, great band. Deadbeat. How are you? Let's buy all of our records and tapes and stuff like that. Rock Falls, are you selling anything? Okay, good. So, Gabe, are you selling anything? Fuck that guy. So, buy records from Rock Falls. You haven't... Very complicated question. Just buy Deadbeat stuff tonight. Please buy some records from Saki. This is a fantastic record show. They have events all the time, and you can get gift certificates for people that don't live here, and then they should come here and visit, and it gives them a reason to visit the lovely 3700 block of Fullerton Avenue. The scene, this is not Logan Square, guys. This is a lie. What neighborhood is this? West Logan Square? Fuck you guys. Are you also the realtor of the place? Thank you guys so much for coming. Have a wonderful night.